0: Hello and welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast all about the life, times, and interests of the namesake for our institute, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, this young, brave, brilliant World War II-era church leader who dared to prophetically and boldly speak out against the racist tyranny of Adolf Hitler and his Nazi regime. He lost his life in that struggle, but not before leaving us a wonderful body of literary work, mostly surrounding Christian life, witness, discipleship, ethics, and moral courage. You can learn all about our work at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute by visiting our website at www.td. B I stands for the dietrich bonhoeffer institute tdbi.org we'd love to have you as a friend if you aren't already and certainly uh, we welcome you to the podcast family hope you'll share this around my conversation partner today is mike goldsworthy of long beach california for 19 years, Mike served on the staff with Parkcrest Christian Church in Long Beach. The last 11 of those years, he served as the lead pastor, transitioning the church towards multiplication models of church planting and discipleship communities, while also shifting a largely homogeneous church towards more diversity, helping to create experiences for the church to live in the biblical tension of unity in the midst of diversity. Currently, in addition to teaching as an adjunct professor of ministry and Bible at Hope International University, he serves as a partner with Slingshot as a staffing and coaching associate. Uh, he also helps churches and church leaders engage with nuance and thoughtfulness and difficult conversations that they are often not having. He guides and mentors individuals as they walk through the transitions of deconstruction and reconstruction of their faith. He also works with churches and leaders who are finding new ways for the church to move forward in post-evangelical realities. With his MA in Transformational Leadership, Mike sees leadership as something beyond just systems and structures but as an investment in the growth of both individuals and teams to become who God designed and created them to be. Mike and his wife, Allison, have been married for 20 years with two teenage children. In the summers, you will often
1: find them hiking, biking, and camping together. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Rob, thanks so much for having me. Um, It's really kind of you, and it's been a real joy to get to know you over the past little while well likewise and i missed a little uh ring here
0: because i like to ring the proverbial bonhoeffer bell when i find a nexus with uh thought and philosophy and i found it right there in reading your bio <laughs> because <laughs> okay. uh, in your concept of leadership as something beyond just systems and structures, I think it reflects very much how Bonhoeffer approached that question. And the one thing I learned while doing my doctoral work around Bonhoeffer, I made the supreme and embarrassing error of saying to a Bonhoeffer scholar who was advising me, I said, You know, I'd like to distill Bonhoeffer down to like his three principles of leadership. And he said, You don't get Bonhoeffer at all. There is so much nuance <laughs> in his thoughts. You cannot distill him down to any kind of outline form so right there i looked at that and said ring the bunhoffer bell so you're already at home with us (laughs) i like that you know mike what what i like to do right out of the gate um because we call this our podcast family is really to help our family members get to know you as a family member and we are in the same family can we talk a little bit about your life story your your life adventure. Uh, I know you weren't born a pastor, so something <laughs> came before that.
1: Yeah. Um, can yeah. you
0: tell us a little bit of, of the Goldsworthy story?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so um, I wasn't born a pastor, but I was practically born in the church. My parents met at the church that I grew up in when they were in high school. It was this little church in Southern California, and uh, and, and I was there a lot. I was really involved. My um, Some of my best friends were at that church, it was a church of about 100 people. There was like eight kids in my youth group, the same eight kids all the way through growing up. And we came out of a movement of churches that's called the Restoration Movement, um, which isn't necessarily super known, but it the branch that I came out of, so it's split into three branches. There's the Disciples of Christ, there's the Church of Christ non-instrumental and then the branch that I came out of is called the Independent Christian Church. And there's actually more megachurches associated with the Independent Christian Church than any other movement or denomination in the United States. So, like, they're around, but people don't know Restoration Movement, and I... Right, and, I, and there's an unusual common uh, thread of that
0: in, in the Mormon story in America. Right? Am I right? The Restoration Churches ha- have way, way, way back. We're talking about way back, but we won't get into LDS history here.
1: It's a little, little,
0: little too much for the telling. So sorry to interrupt.
1: <laughs> yeah, I actually don't know about that. I do know about the um, oh, the International Church of Christ or the Boston Church of Christ uh, branched hmm. out out of out of some of that, but I don't know. I don't know about. Um, uh, yeah, the Church of Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, it was a surprise
0: saints. to me. Uh, and uh, there's a Joseph Smith story in there with some of his mentors uh, who came out of the Restoration Movement. but And, and some of that uh, remains uh, within the LDS Church, Interesting. some of those concepts. But um, yeah, that's for Church History
1: Day, which <laughs> isn't today. Yeah, well, so it was... A group of wonderful people. I mean, I was just at that church a few weeks ago celebrating the pastor's 30th anniversary there, and really, like, I left it kind of emotional, because there were these people that had really been a part of my growing up and were really Mm -hmm. um, meaningful people to me. But I didn't realize until later how fundamentalist the church was. Mm -hmm. So like, women couldn't serve communion. We could have a dude show up who like he is hung over dirty clothes with his beer belly hanging out under his t-shirt while he's serving communion but heaven forbid you let a woman touch the elements like we Mm -hmm. we we didn't do that we in my youth ministry we watched ken ham videos if you know oh yeah ken ham so um the earth is six thousand years old and if you don't believe that if you don't believe that um in a literal seven day creation then you don't believe the bible's true and you're probably not saved So like that was the church culture I grew up in, and my family was heavily involved in that church. But what was really interesting was, they weren't um, they weren't caught up in all of that that cultural element of it. And Mm -hmm. so you know I was in public high schools and we would talk about evolution, and I would come home and say like, oh, this is what we're talking about in school, and there was never a like, oh, we can't talk about that. We need to be afraid of that. That it was kind of like this dichotomy where these two things just kind of sat there in tension, and we didn't, we didn't really like try to work through it. We just kind of let those things sit there. Um, and, and and what about uh, your
0: peers in the church at that time? Were they being homeschooled? Did they go to Christian school? Uh, yeah. Or were they also in public school?
1: Uh, most were at public school as well. We would have a few that would be homeschooled. But I think most of us, the people who are my peers, like sat in that sort of dichotomy. We yep. didn't really like try to figure out like, how do we reconcile these? Or is one right over the other? We, they just kind of sat there. And even like, I remember asking my youth pastor one time that I was reading, I was reading in Timothy where it talked about a woman not speaking, and I was like, wow, this seems really harsh. And I said, what do we do with this? It says women are not permitted to speak in church, like at all. And he's like, "Oh, yeah, well, you know it's like a different culture, and that's like all he said, so we didn't we had a we didn't have a high value of education, and mm. so as a result of that, like you just didn't have robust conversations around that. you just kind of would let those things sit out there. It was just
0: yeah you were you were aliens sojourning in an alien land when you were <laughs> in school, sure, yeah." yeah well what you're describing although i have to say you know the surprise i have here you may have been surprised by what i said about the common uh history with the lds church but my surprise is i I didn't think of that branch of the of the church being you know fundamentalist leaning that's surprising to me uh but I, i i get how you're describing that um so so you grew up in probably what is a quintessential fundamentalist-oriented white, uh, I don't think they would have used the term evangelical, right? That, that branch right. doesn't traditionally use that term, but it's something that we know of very akin to, uh, a kind of white uh, evangelical, style church.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we probably would have never used the term evangelical, and a lot of folks in Restoration Movement won't claim that term. But the reality is like we were seeped in the waters of it. We were we would take a group to promise keepers every year. We were using whoever's Bible studies, voter pamphlets were getting passed out from focus on the family. Like all of the stuff of evangelicalism was sort of in our waters, whether we called ourselves that or not. Mm-hmm. All the amenities. <laughs> all the amenities, all of the stuff. <laughs> right, right, the, the bling,
0: etc. Um, <laughs> and, and then what happened? Uh, you received a call to ministry? Um, yeah, What was the transition to adulthood?
1: Yeah, so I had thought I was going to be an architect. My dad is an electrical contractor. And grew up around construction and all of that. And I thought I would go off to be an architect and was in school for that. And in the midst of that, really had a supernatural experience. I was on the freeway driving to pick up plans from an architect uh, for a project I was working on and had an encounter with God like on the freeway that was never kind of talked about in my church, these sort of like mystical supernatural kind of encounters. And I didn't know what to do with it. It was really powerful and overwhelming. And experienced what I felt like at the time was the voice of God um, asking me to pursue ministry. So I actually changed majors, changed schools, and started started down a path of of um, working towards becoming at the time a youth pastor. Um, yeah, and with that, I ended up, I ended up at this large church in Southern California. It was a large, evangelical church growth oriented church in Southern California, where I came to be their high school pastor. I came, my wife and I got married, we met in college and we got married and two weeks later, we we were starting at this church. And um, yeah, it was that's there. Big, that's a big charge for newlyweds. It, it was a lot. You know, we realized uh, a lot of our first like graduate class are essentially our peers now and we're friends with them. Cause we were like two years older than a lot of them, three years older than a lot of them. They're graduating. My first Sunday that I show up, I'm just kind of standing in the crowd, checking out the the high school ministry, and you know we had around a hundred high schoolers in it. And one of the girls, one of the seniors, uh, nudges her one of her friends and says, "Who's who's the hot new guy?" And then <laughs> I got up on stage and got introduced as their new pastor, and they were super embarrassed. <laughs>
0: I imagine. And, of course, we have a lot of podcast uh, family members here who are not at all familiar with, you know, American evangelical culture. And one of the reasons we actually do these conversations is to help us understand more about, of course, I came out of that culture, wasn't raised in it, but joined it early on as a teenager. Um, So, you know, we take a lot for... Granted here, and, and I was going to pause you for a second in that yep. supernatural experience on the freeway, because I was thinking, okay, everybody, don't, don't think that what's coming next is an alien ship, <laughs> uh, you know, taking Mike up uh, for a uh, tour of the universe. That's good. Th- this, this was a deeply internal experience for you, I imagine. Yes. Um, and, and and is it something that today you look back on and consider to have been a genuine divine encounter?
1: I do, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I, I, I want to be a mystic at heart. I'm not a very good mystic, but I want to be a mystic hmm. at heart. Hmm. And I think that there are, um, it was Carl Rayner who said that the Christian of the future will be a mystic or he'll be nothing at all. And a mystic's just simply somebody who like um is open to and experiences direct encounters with the divine and whatever that sort of like looks like. And I think that was a early kind of experience for me. And my experience has been that, like um it takes on different shapes and forms what that encounter and experience looks like as you mature and grow. But that was the kind of experience I needed at that time and where my maturity was. In who I was at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a similar experience that I look back on and uh, and it still is transformative hmm. these nearly 50 years later. It, it, it's still a source of transformation for me when I reflect on it. So I really I really appreciate that. Uh, but now now um, you know there's always that tension between, uh, mystical spirituality and um, the realities of a professional career Sure, as a clergy person. So now you're serving in a church as a full-time paid minister. And what is life like for you there in the church as a professional?
1: Yeah, I mean so I was at a large church where we had I don't remember somewhere probably between 30 and 50 staff members and so as a a result of that it's a big staff yeah so i could be really focused on my role was at initially was just to work with high school students so that looked like a lot of like development of um of volunteer teams it looked like a lot of counseling of high school students looked like prepping sermons and things like that budget management and but it also looked like expectations of growth always needed to be up and to the right and so you needed to have Mm -hmm. next year more students attending your ministry than you had this year you needed to have a bigger budget next year than you had this year Um, you needed to always figure out ways that those things were always increasing that that um butts and budgets were always there was always more of them than there was before (laughs) and did that include uh
0: tabulating conversions baptisms
1: etc yep Yep, all of that um we definitely counted those um and in our so this church was also restoration movement and there's a high emphasis on baptism so baptism was a significant number that we counted there to see. Yeah, you wanted to have more baptisms this year than you had last year.
0: And, and we should clarify here that for us, we're talking about age of accountability, baptism, Yeah, uh, basically when a, a, a young person, a child is old enough to uh, judge right and wrong and and spiritual and uh, communal expectations, et cetera, et cetera more like a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah than, than what um, those who practice pedo-baptism or infant baptism would think of. Uh, we're not talking about more babies being born, especially to high schoolers, but probably, probably didn't include that. <laughs> that was always a catastrophe. But, uh, but we're talking about um, young people coming in, having a spiritual or conversion experience and then
1: seeking baptism as the next step in the, yeah that's a good clarification spiritual development we we would always refer to it as a believer's baptism that you had to ah, be right. able to express belief for yourself and we always practice by immersion as well so if you had been sprinkled um even as an adult if that was a practice of the the tribe that you came out of we would encourage rebaptism. um we wouldn't encourage rebaptism if somebody had been immersed already, but if you hadn't been immersed, we would encourage rebaptism. Because literally,
0: baptizo means immerse or totally. immersion. So you would take them what? Down to the beach and into the ocean? Or would you uh, take the root of the tank, the, the kind of bathtub like? facility that's in many evangelical churches
1: (laughs) yeah you know all you know all the ways um well we did both so we had a beach baptism every year where we would bring a crowd of a few hundred people down to the beach to watch folks get baptized we do that once a year and then we would on any given sunday we had a tub that was built into the church that uh, people could get baptized on any sunday there
0: So my my baptismal story surrounding those two scenarios is I was baptized on a beach, but not in the warm waters of the Pacific, you know, in Southern California for me. It was in the Niagara River in October, and oh I literally turned blue. My, my lips were blue, and I was shaking uncontrollably, not, not because of some deep spiritual uh, experience, but because it was so darn freezing, and I still remember that. Uh, so I was immersed you know, in a beach uh, baptism, uh, but most of the baptisms that I would participate in in my ministerial Uh, career was in the tub uh, up at the top of the platform at the front of the church or somewhere else in the building Uh, so uh, you know it's all very real to me and 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 the folks who are listening we probably have more folks who don't know the the ways of evangelical Mm -hmm. religious life than we do have them so yeah I'm, I'm hoping this is educational for our family as yeah. much as anything else, and 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 so you go on, and uh, and obviously from the bio that I read, uh, you have a very successful ministry at this church, and I I, I don't mean to vulgarize it, but you kind of climb
1: the ladder within the life and work of the church. I did, so. My goal had never been to move on. like I had I had wanted to be to retire at an old age as a youth pastor, working with junior high and high school students. Oh wow. Um, and pretty quickly they started promoting me into other roles. Mm-hmm. And um, I was working under a pastor who had been the senior pastor of our church for uh, thirty years at his retirement. And he was getting close to that, and they had decided to put together a transition plan where they would bring somebody in as the next uh, senior pastor, and that they would spend two years working together as the previous senior pastor moved into retirement, and this person took over. And I was asked by the elders, which is the sort of like governing body, the board of the church, if I would consider uh, going through an interview process to step into that role, and I ended up doing that. And so, yeah, at 29 years old, I ended up taking over the church. And so we were mm. a megachurch with multiple campuses and several million dollar budget. And uh, at the time, I was one of the youngest megachurch pastors in the U.S. I would think so.
0: And again, I think most people can imagine what a senior pastor does. But can you just lay it out for us? Um, you know, what did you do in that leader role? Of sure. the church.
1: Yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you're the CEO of of a nonprofit organization. And so you're you're concerned with the budget, you're concerned with the income and things like that. You're concerned with just the weekly rhythm of the church life. And I became very concerned with the formation of our people, meaning like what kinds of people are is the systems that our church is doing, what kinds of people is it creating? And what kinds of people do we want it to create? So we'd spend a lot of time strategizing around that. Um, I led our staff team, and so we had a large staff, which also included a, a preschool. So I would lead that team. I would do some counseling. I didn't do a lot of counseling, because frankly, I'm terrible at it. And mm. I don't know. I would have multiple couples that were in crisis come to me, and I I think my percentage of how many of them uh, didn't move into divorce was low. So. Uh. We kept me away from doing that sort of work. Yeah, then there's that. (laughs) (laughs) Then there's that. Yep. Okay. Uh, Yeah, and I put a lot of emphasis on the preaching and teaching work. So I would spend a lot of time working through sermons, uh, training up other preachers and teachers. Uh, I probably spent close to half of my week on that work. Like that work was really meaningful and important to me.
0: And just out of curiosity, because I was in leadership roles very uh, early in life, I mean, in my 20s, and there was always kind of a mixed reception of, you know, by people in their 40s, 50s, even 60s, who sometimes had children older than me, and I was, you know, in a, in a top leadership role. What, what kind of reception did you get from a large congregation?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say it was similar. It was mixed. There were people who loved that I was younger, that I had fresh ideas, that it could help them feel like, oh, we're doing something hip and new. Um, And it could help them feel good about where the church was headed in some ways. Because for a lot of folks, they felt like I aligned with them. And some of them I did. And some of them projected onto me an alignment that didn't actually exist. But they could feel like that, so they could feel like, oh, we're doing the same thing we've always done. He's just wearing jeans instead of slacks now, and that's that's gonna help <laughs> you know, connect with the kids. Um, right. So you'd have that. But then we definitely had the folks that felt like I was too young, which I was, I think, uh, who felt like I didn't have the kind of maturity to handle the responsibilities of leadership at that level, which I think is correct uh so you definitely had that and you had people that had concerns about there were things that were already surfacing about where I was at theologically that were different from where the collective consciousness of the church had been and as people got maybe just like senses of it because some of it wasn't explicitly being said but as people got senses of it there was definitely concerns that were being raised by some of the by some of the folks who are a little bit older
0: and were they drawing conclusions like that's what we get for appointing a young whippersnapper (laughs) as lead pastor? or Or was it something more profound, deeper, and more complex than that?
1: Yeah, I think it was more complex than that. I don't think they would have attributed it simply to my youth, but I think it's plausible that they would have seen my youth as a part of it, that I would have had a naivete that would have allowed me to be exposed to and opened up to ideas that were gonna push us in directions that they felt like were not the, the true directions that the church should head in. So before we get
0: into a discussion of those differences that you held to, uh, I wanna pause for a second and just say, if we took a snapshot of you now in this role, uh you are the did did was the title lead pastor yep yep so you were lead pastor of a california megachurch that sounds like on the whole it was pretty healthy financially um relationally uh you haven't you haven't alluded to any catastrophic (laughs) tension inside the church, (laughs) or or scandals, Um, and maybe you'll get into that. But, But for the moment, if I took a snapshot, I'd say, wow, at that stage of your life, of your calling, of your career, it looks pretty ideal. There must have been a lot of aspiring young pastors out there who would look at you and say, wow, that's where I want to be someday. Isn't he blessed? He's really got everything, you know, going that you could dream of at that stage of life. And with the aspirations, the the, uh, ministerial and spiritual aspirations, um, maybe even financial, I'm sure they took good care of you. So all of that to say, looked like I mean, from what you're describing, that's pretty perfect. That's a pretty perfect life for someone like you or me at that stage of, of our orientation to the world and, and, and to those we loved and, and to the God that we worship. But it sounds like there was something just a little off, maybe in the interior world. What Can, yeah. can you take us there?
1: Yeah, well, there was... Um... I should say it was not necessarily a perfect scenario and I didn't realize oh. how much it wasn't a perfect scenario until I took it on. Mm-hmm. And so we were we were not in good shape financially when I took it over and I didn't know I how to handle all that. So about a year into being senior pastor, I had to lay off nine people in a day. And so oh. imagine... Wow. A 30-year-old laying off people who have you know, kids in high school and college. Um, I caught our operations uh, director had been embezzling from the church for seven years. And oh, wait, so okay, I uncovered so that. everything so, isn't as it at first appears. Yeah, so there was more that was going on that I was not equipped to be able to handle. And I like to say that like I got through into the deep end of the pool, I had no idea how to swim. And there's a lot of people who are standing around the pool and they were cheering me on. Like they were all for me, but nobody was jumping in and swimming with me. And yeah. I didn't know how to get somebody to swim with me. I didn't know, like I was 30 at that point. And I didn't know like, what do I need and how do I need it? So it was oh. like this environment that was really supportive and yet like unsupportive at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah,
0: sure. Uh, so, um things were not as happy at uh, at Happy Church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, so, and that uh, is, that's, that's an enormous burden. What you just
1: described uh, is an enormous burden. So that, yeah, so that starts taking its toll on me. And then the other is, yeah, that there is a discrepancy between who the church is and who I am. Mm. And uh, even like really early on, I had been really informed and challenged by some views of the ways of understanding the Christian faith that pushed against violence, for instance, that um, I had come to conclusions that I believed that the the faith called us to stand against things like the death penalty, uh, against war, against militarism, had some strong views about Christians and the military, and things like that 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 I had expressed to our elder board in the midst of our interview process. And the, the essential response that I got from it was, we're fine with you holding those views, we're just not fine with you publicly talking about those views. Mm-hmm. And as a late 20-something who was like stars in his eyes of like, oh, here's this great leadership role, for me then, what that looked like was, oh, that's fine. I can do this thing. And like that doesn't—I don't need to talk about that stuff. Like that's that's secondary stuff. I can talk about other things. Um, but obviously, over time, like that begins to eat at you, and there becomes more and more mm-hmm. things that it's—it's it's fine for you to believe that. Just don't talk about that from the stage. Don't talk about that publicly.
0: Boy, that sets up a lot of internal stress points and conflict zones with yourself. I mean. Um, I know what it is, for example, to be given a public script. This is the script that we work from. But to have deep uh, internal um, tension with that script. So uh, do you you come up with a modus vivendi? You know, I can do this. I kind of have two worlds. My interior world and my exterior, you know, outward-facing world? And does that work for a season of time if you, if you did that? Um, how do you live with yourself and with others when you have that kind of a
1: difference going on inside? Yeah. Well, for me, a lot of how it would have to, like, the public sort of, Piece of it was I was preaching every week and I would come across things that I was teaching on that it was like, how do I not talk about this? And the phrase that I started using to like convince myself at the time was, I said, well, I can lead people to a cliff and they can jump off on their own if they want to. I just hmm. won't push hmm. them over the cliff. Hmm. And so I think for a period of time, like that worked for me. Like that was a way of feeling like I had convinced myself that what I was going to do was that by doing that sort of work, that eventually I would be able to be more explicit about things, but I had to sort of like warm people up to it. I had to like help them slowly get there. And I thought what would happen was that one day there would be this sort of like crossing over point where where we could talk about those things more explicitly. And even in ways, I really did think that my role as a pastor wasn't to get everyone to think like me, but was to create a space where we could have healthy conversations around that stuff. And so uh, even some of what I began doing then towards my latter years as the as the pastor there was, while I couldn't say things, I could bring in guests who could say things. So I would strategically bring in guests to either preach or to hold some sort of, like we would do these Sunday evening forums around uh, culturally relevant topics. And we would bring in somebody at those to sort of push some boundaries that um, I either had been told explicitly I couldn't push or I created my own, cause some of it wasn't explicit, right? It was my own sort of per- perception of, I can't talk about this stuff. I can't push these things forward. So there was definitely like, I was trying to figure out ways to do that, um, but they, they definitely, because it hadn't been explicit from me in some sort of way, It was creating within the church a sort of sense of like confusion about who are we? Where are Mm -hmm. we at on these things? What do we actually think about these things? And a church, especially a large evangelical church, really sees its senior pastor, lead pastor as like a figurehead that represents the church. So anything that I would say would for them seem like this is now what our corporate body believes and buys into as opposed to like, no, this is the pastor trying to challenge us not on what to think, but how to think. So do you stay within a
0: sort of safe zone there for a while? Um, Are there there some dangerous moments where the tension grows to a place of conflict? Or, you know, do you kind of... Yeah, go along to get along, and how long does that last before moments of of truth and decision making arrive for you?
1: Yeah, well, I definitely would have moments. So I, um, before the twenty twelve presidential election, I preached a series on politics in the church, which is not a part of the church growth strategies that they tell you to do. Hmm. Right And um, and really, in a lot of ways, tried to do some things to create space in our church to say, we actually had a really healthy contingency of people in different political parties for different reasons. And I went out in our parking lot one day and I counted bumper stickers for, that was the Obama-McCain election, and right. I counted bumper stickers for each of them, and it was almost 50-50 in our parking lot. Wow. And so I got up on the stage, and I held that up as this like, here's this beautiful like, picture of who we are as this church that holds these tensions together. And um, I got so much flack from doing that from both sides, from hmm. Obama supporters who said like, you're, you're uh, celebrating people who want to um, elect a warmonger to people then obviously who were pointing to Obama and saying like, you're supporting somebody who wants to kill fetuses and kill babies and so had had both of that, and one of the things that I realized had happened in our church was that we had, I started calling it a pseudo-unity, that we had like a don't ask, don't tell policy around stuff, and as long as we didn't talk about it, there could be differences in the church, but as soon as we like tried to engage in those differences, they came to the surface, and they had just been sitting beneath the surface, and they would sort of bubble over, so I definitely found that, in 2012 before the election, and we lost, I wanna say, two to 300 people, if I remember right, uh, after I preached that series. So we had a few hundred people leave the church, most of whom were mm. pretty conservative, mm. because I wasn't mm. essentially giving religious right talking points.
0: And that's a real mark against a pastor, particularly in a mega church, but I think in any evangelical church, if you have a walkout for any reason, Um, that's a mark against your... I mean, you're supposed to be uh, achieving the opposite results. You're you're supposed to be bringing people in and growing the church and here, in in a sense, you're shrinking it. What kind of reaction came from the leadership and from the key members and so on when, when that exodus occurred?
1: Yeah, well, so the board who are my supervisors were actually largely supportive. Um so to their credit, they felt okay. like Okay. They felt like what I was teaching on and doing was the right thing. They questioned whether or not I should have been teaching on it. Like I definitely mm-hmm. got some pushback on that, but mm-hmm. they didn't question the content of what I was teaching. Um so I could appreciate that the the staff was a different kind of situation because I think that you had um, more divergent views on the staff from where I was at. And what I just hadn't realized was how different of a page I was on from many of our staff. Like they, several of them wanted to, we had, when I took it over, we were the largest church in the city. And that was like, they loved that. They loved being a part of that. And they would go to all the conferences with all the large churches telling you about all the things that you needed to do to keep getting your church bigger and larger. And so for them, I was violating what for them was the core of like, they wouldn't say that it was the core, but for them, it really was in a lot of ways, the core operating principle of our church and why they wanted to be on staff there and why they were attracted to it. And so where I began to move towards saying like, nah, what we're doing as a church is creating a certain kind of people and what kinds of people is our systems creating. They were much more about like what we're doing as a church is getting bigger and larger and getting more people to be a part of it. Mm. So that definitely started to create some fissures between, between me and our staff team. Mm. You know, you're reminding
0: me. I think you know that I was an itinerant preacher for most of my ministry life. Uh, I traveled from place to place, and I was always the safe guest because you know, I was coming in and leaving. I was doing the stuff you alluded to earlier. I was taking yeah. on some of the controversial stuff, but I was out the door on Monday morning flying back home from wherever I was speaking, and pastors would tell me, you know, thanks, you know, you, you, you helped us, but I got up the next Sunday, and I said, what you heard last Sunday when our guest was here does not represent what our church stands for. (laughs) So I had that kind of ignominy that I lived with, but they'd they'd have me come back and tackle some other (laughs) controversial issue. And one of the things, uh, a humor uh, line that I used in those days, I'd say, you know, I'm not here to tell you that God is a Democrat or a Republican. Uh, I have my suspicions, but actually, if you look at Deuteronomy 1720, it says when you install the king, he shall he should not turn to his right nor to his left. So now you know everybody knows God is an independent, ha ha. But I would be told by my host pastors, everybody loved everything you said, except when you got into that Democrat Republican thing. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, it was a it was a um, a sore point uh, whenever I I tried to use that joke. So, but to get here with your story I'm gonna fast forward now because there does come a time when you start wrestling with some some stuff internally that will eventually lead you to leave the idyllic life uh, in the evangelical world which is to be the lead pastor of a mega church is a pre, pretty high and, and respectful post to have no matter how controversial you are, uh, but you're gonna leave that. But what's the antecedent to that momentous decision?
1: Yeah, I mean, there had been a lot of stuff building for a long time that I would say a part of my story that maybe is a little bit different than yours is I didn't fully realize what it all was until I stepped out of it. Mm. I had been sensing a growing disconnect. And I had been processing, like I um, I read and process quite a lot, quite often. And I had taken a sabbatical actually. And one of the things that I did on my sabbatical was I'd always felt like I had guardrails up on what I was allowed to think about, not mm. think about. Mm-hmm. That it was kind of like, uh, I felt like I was always told, we want you to study this and we want you to come to your own conclusions as long as your own conclusions are one of these three answers, right? So you have these guardrails up. And during my sabbatical, I said, well, what if I put those guardrails down and I just kind of allow myself to mentally go where I haven't allowed myself to mentally go. And so that looked like being real honest in uh, wrestling through LGBTQ inclusion in the church, for instance, wrestling Mm -hmm. through, um, uh, a uh, inclusive theology of salvation, heaven and hell stuff. Um, it looked like kind of the things that like you don't touch. It, lo- it looked like getting a lot more honest about views around violence and um, and war and militarism in the church, and where I had sort of like uh, uh, held some things that I hadn't been um, honest in my convictions about the way that I was living them out, things like that, and. I remember um, I hit this breaking point where I don't exactly know what had happened. Like, well, what had happened was that what was going on internally flowed out externally. And I had a breakdown in front of a couple of my my elder board during a yearly review. And I just like blurted out to them and said, I need to be done sooner rather than later. And it was this like emotional, visceral response to something that was going on internally that I hadn't it just came out like I hadn't processed it. I hadn't decided to say that. It just like it just happened. Mm. Um, and, and the way that like I began to make sense of it, we brought in this consultant to help us sort of process through how we would transition me out of the church and set the church up to life beyond Mike. And so they did this extensive all church survey. And they did all these focus groups for a couple of days of the most invested people in our church, and then she came to meet with me one-on-one, and she's just asking me a lot of questions about myself, my leadership, uh, and it gets about 30 minutes in the conversation and she stops and she goes, Mike, I imagine that you must be incredibly anxious. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, I am, like, and I've actually been getting more and more anxious, like every year that I've been the pastor so much so that like, I've had some like debilitating panic attacks and awesome. um, and said like, yeah, that's happening. W- why? Why would you say that? What would make you say that? And she goes, I've just spent all this time doing a deep dive, trying to understand who your church is. And just in 30 minutes with you telling me about who you are, I can already tell there's a significant chasm between who you are and who the church is. And I'd imagine that for you to be able to lead this church for as long as you have, as effectively as you have, then you must have had to show up as somebody other than who you actually are. And when wow. you keep showing up as somebody other than who you actually are, it's going to result in a lot of internalized anxiety.
0: Insightful. Yeah. A uh, person there. Uh, was, was she a psychologist or had that training? Or uh, I mean, that's that's quite perceptive. I'm married to a psychotherapist, so uh,
1: she, she starts sounding like my wife uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> working with a client. Yeah, I actually don't know what her formal training mm. is, um, but yeah, mm. she's just a church consultant. Yeah, yeah. So so do you sit with that
0: and c- contemplate its its implications at that point, or do you compartmentalize
1: and kind of go on... Uh, with with the plan? Yeah, no, that. Um, we had already initiated a plan of me leaving the church. And what that began to do is that began to give me language and understanding for what was happening in me and some of what needed to happen for me to be able to live a healthier, more whole kind of life moving forward. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Takes a lot of courage.
0: To face yourself, and I, I know it is one of the scariest exercises. Hmm. Uh, and uh, and so, were you able to make that harrowing journey by yourself? Did you have, I imagine, uh, your wife's support? Uh, did you have any other? support systems around you to help you kind of um, calibrate
1: with yourself? Yeah, Yeah. so I definitely had, I had some friends who are pastors around the country who I had a lot of resonance with, and um, they would have been folks that I would be leaning into for stuff. I was seeing a spiritual director pretty regularly at the time, and a spiritual director is simply somebody whose role it is, like, they're different than a counselor, and they're different than a coach, their, their role is to help you open yourself up to the divine and to be present in this moment with whatever it is that the divine might be doing in your life and to be be attentive to that. And I found that to be um, a really helpful and choose a really helpful and meaningful person in my life for that.
0: And how long does this phase last before you depart the church. And, and I'm mm. curious whether you departed on schedule
1: <laughs> yeah. or ahead of schedule or, or did yeah. you linger and were you late departing? <laughs> How did that work? So we took nine months to transition me out and I did depart on schedule, although there was a couple of things that happened where I almost, I, I had some um, conflict at, at a point with, with the chair of our board that, turned to a point where I was calling people on a Friday saying, hey, I might have to resign this weekend. Do you have a job for me next week, because I'm not sure what mm-hmm. I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 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 short of it is that we were able to figure out a way forward. And the church was generous to me in my leaving in a way that like, they said, I didn't know what was next for me. And they said, "Like, we want to give you some runway for that. And so they were generous, which I know is not the experience that a lot of people have. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that we had worked out was I said if uh, if you want like if we want to have me go through this time then if you can give me a runway then I can guarantee you an end date, and that will give me a space to start to not even think about what's next until I leave here and to give my full attention to this place as long as I'm here, which in a lot of ways like was what I wanted to be true because this church had had given me a lot of opportunities and like. It was both the source of a lot of pain in my life, but it was also the source of a lot of like opportunity and um, relationship, and it had been really meaningful to me. So it was obviously a really complex relationship, but I wanted to do my best to figure out like how do I honor this church well in leaving, and if I can be fully invested here uh, in doing that before I have to figure out what's next, and then I would like to do that. Well, I'd love to linger there for a minute, but... We can't, but I,
0: I'd really like to only because it's, it's so much a metaphor of every complex human relationship, particularly marriage, I think. Mm. And and really, uh, I know for many, I've only done short stints as a pastor. Most of my work has been done outside the church with a formal congregational role. Uh, but I do know for many, uh, leaving a church is like a divorce. Uh, you know, taking the leadership of a church can be like a marriage and the life uh, in between is like, uh, like a uh, dysfunctional family or sometimes a very healthy family. It depends, but it's, yeah. it's very much a familial type of metaphor. But leaving that, um, because I really kind of want to hurry on to the big, to the departure and this new season in your life and work which now I know as kind of I hang my hat on the hook that the work that you do in the post-evangelical uh, under yeah. the post-evangelical monitor and I really want to hurry there I don't want to do any injustice to the transition it must have been enormous
1: yeah so uh, I had I never could figure out where I fit in the church world there were there's all kinds of pastor gatherings there are a dime a dozen and i kept trying to figure out like what fits who i am and where i'm at and none of them made sense to me but i kept meeting friends along the way who were doing work in churches that i would have a lot of resonance with and i'd hear them say the same thing over and over they'd say i feel like i'm all alone in what i'm doing i feel like nobody else is doing this kind of work and i just kept meeting people who were saying that and I thought, gosh, if I could find a way to get them all to know each other and to meet each other, maybe they couldn't feel so alone, and maybe like there's some sort of resonance that comes out of that. And so that's that's one of the things I started doing was started trying to find these folks. We started saying like, um, it was people that we were saying felt ecclesiologically homeless, and as you know, ecclesiology is just simply like the theological term to say like the way that we think about the church. And so, ding, ding, ding
0: here. Uh, I've missed so many Bonhoeffer rings, oh no. Bonhoeffer bell rings here, because you've had so many in this telling, but I've been enthralled in it, so I missed my cues. But uh, but I'm ringing one here because, of course, if Bonhoeffer could be described as anything from early on uh, in his ministry formation and life and work, it was that he was... Uh, it ecclesially homeless, uh, and even stopped attending church hmm. for a large part of his life and work.
1: I didn't know he that he
0: absented himself from the church entirely because he couldn't find the church. He said he couldn't locate the true church anymore, and so the community he began in in the in, in what we now know as. Uh, you know the life together setting of, um, uh, uh, of Finkenwald, the seminary, was, for all intent and purposes, his church. But he he never found it, never located it, up until the point of his death. So that's just a little aside there. But uh... no,
1: I, I maybe maybe this is another conversation with you later. I would love to push into that at some point. The phrase of his that I would often use in preaching was from life together where he says something to the effect of whoever loves the ideal community christian community more than the actual christian community itself destroys it because he Indeed. wants some sort of thing that that like can't actually exist instead of loving the thing that actually is yes. and um and so yeah i would love to hear about his tension of that versus like I can't find like the ideal church, and so, like, I'm not going to be a part of one for a while. Like, that's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's fascinating. I you don't know, know of enough. course. Yeah,
0: it was such an extreme situation there, but in a sense, you were living it. Yeah, I mean, now ha- have you actually left at this point? You have left your, yeah. your role, and, and now you're
1: out looking for fellow pilgrims. Yeah, essentially, it's um. One of my friends says that the work that I do, he describes it as that there's this picture, a vast, dark uh, uh, landscape, and that there's a few people who are holding torches out in these different areas that are gathering a small group of people around them as they hold these torches. And he said, you're like the one who shoots up a flare in the sky, and it lights up the whole landscape so that everybody with the torches can find each other. Oh, wow. Um, Oh, that's profound so yeah so i started finding these folks that just felt homeless in the larger church landscape and not just not just people who felt that way but but largely pastors who felt that way who were creating new expressions of church who were transitioning their church into new and different forms and spaces and weren't sure where they fit in the larger church landscape and for most of them they had been formed in some sort of way by evangelicalism and particularly white evangelicalism and they had grown out of its boundaries feeling like its boundaries were too narrow for the concepts of god that they had come to know and understand and feeling like that there was a political corruption that had invaded the church that needed to be escaped from and um and so they're still trying to do church trying to be the church but trying to figure out what does that mean and look like in our time in our place in our context
0: So just when maybe you were feeling a little relief, I know what it was for me to get off the platform, the stage, if you will, the pulpit, and enjoy a little bit of private um, reconstruction uh, of myself, boom, you land as a national headline. because <laughs> That, that was not the this. plan. <laughs> right. But can you tell us about why I knew of you before I was introduced to you? I, I knew of you and I knew your work because I read it. I think it was maybe even the New York Times or Washington Post or yeah, so Washington one of Post. the big journals. Okay, Washington Post, my hometown uh, national paper here. And I'm reading about this later I would realize wait a minute you're the same guy I was reading about in the <laughs>
1: national news story how what was that about yeah so we had i had begun doing these um like cohorts of pastors who felt ecclesiologically homeless for them to know each other and learn from each other and we would once a month get on zoom calls and I had three of these going where we had these groups of pastors who felt alone and they were starting to not feel alone and And at some point, one of them says, like, hey, what if we could all be together in person and we could meet the people who are in the other groups that you're leading? And at that same time, there's a church in South Bend that's one of these post-evangelical churches that had received some grant money for me to do some work with them. And they had said, hey, what if the last time that you come out here and do work with us, what if you bring some post-evangelical pastors for our staff to meet, for them to know they're not alone and to see a bigger picture of what's going on? So we put together this little thing that we thought would be a small gathering of like 20 of us who would show up and sit around some tables at this church in South Bend and share about what we were learning, share about what was happening in the church in our space, and just be encouraged by each other. And what ended up happening was that about 120 people ended up showing up, and yeah, Washington Post came and did a front page story on it of these pastors. That's right, I forgot it was front page, yeah. Yeah, which was crazy. It was a crazy, and that's town.
0: a big. In, in this town, we call that a big ink gig. <laughs> a big
1: <laughs> now,
0: ink gig. It, it was below the fold for whatever it's worth. Oh,
1: oh, oh, okay. So it diminishes it slightly, but not by much. <laughs> not when it comes to the post. Um, yeah, and it was a group of people that like were not on the same page about everything, which was great. Uh, but like obviously, then that creates issues where the church is used to it's created a form. Where if you are a part of a gathering where somebody's talking about a thing, uh, you need to fully... You, like, by being there, you fully align with what all they're saying. So mm-hmm. by things mm-hmm. that were actually published in that story, several of those pastors got into some hot water with their constituents because they were a part of a gathering where they might not have agreed with everything, but we were trying to create a space that said, you don't need to do that. We need to create a new space that can hold things in tension.
0: Yeah, you and know, that's kind of how orthodoxy works. <laughs> um, and and you actually then continue your work with this ad hoc uh, cohort, uh, I might call it. Um, but but something emerges of a slightly more formal nature. I mean, I understand that it's not structural. It's not hierarchical. There's no. Um, control or uh, direction. Uh, these, are, these are all people on a journey, maybe traveling together for patches of it, but at other times branching out on their own, etc. And, and I think of that as your post-evangelical world. But can you, can you give me a little, uh, give all of us a little clearer focus of that? what are you doing now?
1: (laughs) That is an excellent question that my wife asks all the time. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I mean, largely in this space, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create a space for uh, the different churches and organizations that would find themselves wanting to work together to be able to find each other, to be able to know each other, uh, Mm -hmm. to care for people who are leading in the space. like. You know, this has been a rough season for pastors in general, but it's been a really rough season for these pastors because they don't have a tribe and a space where they belong. And so to be able to care for them, uh, helping them reimagine things for the church, there are things that some churches are holding on to of old ways of doing things that they, they need to abandon. And then there's some churches that have abandoned things that they didn't need to abandon. And so I've been trying to help them um, strategically work through that stuff and yeah we have a gathering in October where again we're trying to just have a connection point where it's not only these different pastors and some of their their leaders and artists who are helping shape the communities come together but then also different organizations that uh, that are trying to do work that would resonate with this space so that like one of the things that I'm convinced is for this new space in the church to actually not only survive but to to thrive and to be a viable space for the church is that there's got to be this larger infrastructure that are that like the evangelical industrial complex has figured out and it's a part of the reason like hmm. evangelicalism in its current form is not going to go away anytime soon that there are hmm. there are people who there are systems that are able to platform people and ideas. And a whole structure that supports all of that—that's gonna keep feeding it. And so, even like as we record this, the the big report about the Southern Baptist Convention was just recently released about sexual abuse there. And mm-hmm. like some things will probably change there, but genuinely, like probably not a lot, because mm-hmm. um, there's a larger—it doesn't need to. There's a larger structure that can support those systems going on. And so, some churches will defect. Some key leaders will step out of it. But it will it will largely continue on for another you know it's going to be 50 years before we see significant changes there so there's so part of what I'm trying to do is trying to figure out how do we bring together there are people and work that's being done that already would support this system they're just not connected with the churches they're not connected with the pastors I'm trying to figure out ways to help them connect with each other.
0: Hmm. You know when uh, you probably know the story and, and a lot of folks will but um when Dietrich Bonhoeffer made his announcement to the family to his largely non-religious family that he was going to pursue pursue theology and that as a cleric uh, as a minister and not as an academic um his family members were scandalized, especially two older brothers who said, how could you give yourself to a corrupt and moribund entity like the church? And his response at age 14, being as precocious as he was, he said, then I shall reform the church. Hmm. And I think of you, Mike, as a modern-day reformer, as a Luther, as a Bonhoeffer, as uh, a Zwingli, as, you know, so many uh, through the years, uh, through the millennia, uh, who have set about to reform the church and your work in deconstruction and reconstruction, helping people through that very, very difficult and, and life-altering experience. Um, Is for the betterment both of the church for Christian believers uh, for the society particularly uh, the very fractured American populace uh, and and I don't think it's too big to say for humanity Mm. Uh, it's really really big and important work and particularly when we see what politicized evangelicalism, um, morally bankrupt evangelicalism, uh, you know, self-aggrandizing uh, American evangelicalism, the the damage that has been done to individuals and uh, to a country and even arguably to a world, that work is more important than ever so uh, with that massive encomium uh you got a lot on your shoulders now uh, (laughs) after that out Uh. take but um how can people follow along with the work that you're doing how do they find you we're going to put all these links everybody don't get nervous if you don't have a pen because uh we're going to put these live links uh in the text surrounding this podcast but just for those who don't necessarily want to look down right now at their phone and they're just listening. How did they find you?
1: Yeah. Well, can I first say that was a really, really, it was all really kind of you to say. And um, I mean, it, and you made it easy to say, well, yeah, it's really generous and gracious of you to say all those things. And there are, um, there are people who are doing the hard work of like, uh, of, of reimagining the church and are like building something. And all I'm getting to do is like find them and help them know each other. And Mm -hmm. so I feel like, um, yeah, there are women and men who are doing really significant, beautiful work that is, like I say, like it's a human project. I mean, I think like Christianity at its heart is not about trying to make more Christians. It's about trying to live, trying to help humanity live a flourishing kind of life. Together, um, ding,
0: ding, ding, ding. <laughs>
1: um, so yeah, all that to say, like there are women and men who are creating these kinds of churches, doing the boots on the ground, hard work of it. That I'm so, I'm really grateful for them, and it, it's one of they're the reason like I'm still I still believe in the church and believe in the possibilities of the church. Um, for folks to stay in contact with me, I'm terrible at creating all this kind of stuff. So at some point I'll get better at it, but I've got a little website that's got some stuff up on it. It's mikegoldsworthy.com, and uh, I'll let you spell that out for them on the on the yeah. notes there. But um, but yeah, there's places to like get in contact with me there, or I'm uh, fairly active on Instagram is probably the best place, and I'm just m goldsworthy on Instagram. And uh, point people to the stuff that I'm doing through those, through whether it's um, podcasts or events that we're hosting or, um, yeah, other kinds of gatherings and experiences that we have. And and I try to also, I've got a newsletter you can sign up for on my website, and I try to every once in a while on that to include other organizations to point people to, to other uh, works that are going on that people should know about. So that's a good connecting point as well.
0: Well, let's use an old reference in the American white, American evangelical world. Uh, let's, let's pop an Operation Andrew here, everybody. And when you talk to evangelicals, lay or ordained, pastors especially, uh, but uh, ministry leaders of all kinds who find themselves outside the boundary lines, uh, who are exploring new And forbidden territories Uh, please tell them about the work that Mike is doing and show them that there is uh, a place of refuge uh, that there is a family out there uh, that there are fellow travelers companions on what Jesus referred to as the narrow road uh, the one less traveled uh, to borrow the title of of, of a book of long ago Um, so all that to say, Mike, I'm, I'm so, um, more than, than happy and delighted, uh, to be connected with you and, and to have your company. And, uh, we're podcast buddies. People find your podcast. They're going to find me hanging around that space. And now when people come over here at Shank Talks Blood Offer, they're going to find you. And I hope we find each other in a lot of crossroads because the work you're doing is critical, critical to the well-being of the world. So thank you for joining me in the conversation. Folks, thanks for your patience with our long discussion here. I hope it's been as rich for you as it's been for me. And Mike, I'm gonna look for the next available opportunity to do something together.
1: Yeah, I can't wait, I can't wait. Thanks for having me on, Rob. And thanks for the work that you're doing. It's really important and it's needed and it's yeah, one of the things that's going to help us as we continue to reimagine the kind of the kind of world that we want to be a part of and create and the kind of world that we're supposed to be a part of and create. Mm. Let
0: us say amen. All right. Thank you one one and all for joining us today in this um kitchen table conversation Uh, glad you eavesdropped and I'll look forward to being with you next time